The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 5 and 6. When we next see Martin, he has become wholly obsessed with bacteriology. He has moved in with the still irritating but, to Martin, fundamentally lovable Cliff, and he only occasionally engages in critical reminiscences of the sanctimonious Ira, insipid Irving, opportunistic Angus, and half-witted Fatty. He annoys his professors with his own variety of sanctimoniousness, his obsession with certain Gottlieb-inspired principles of scientific method. Control, control, control. Where is your control? Wasn't it maybe a post-hoc, propter-hoc? When Martin questions a professor about the value of learning prescriptions by heart, the professor is driven to treating him like a toddler. Because I tell you to. Meanwhile, Madeline cultivates an image for herself of the cultured and literate hostess. Her decorations, entertainments, and dresses are chosen carefully to project a worldly and sophisticated soul, and Martin drowns in admiration. A poor medical student and still unsettled soul, Martin is not yet ready to propose marriage, but he wanted all he could get. He goes to Madeline expectant with adventure, but finds a sentry in her mother, Mrs. Fox. Despite all his efforts to get Madeline alone, the stolid and persistent Mrs. Fox wins. Cliff mocks Madeline's pretentiousness. She knows all about literature, except maybe how to read. And warns of her wiles. She's a dead shot. She can hit a smart young M.D. at ninety paces. And his opposition convinces Martin that he longs to marry her. The moment Martin shows that he was stirred by her graces, Madeline embarks on a campaign to improve him, with a capital I. One night, he meets her in the apartment house rooftop garden that she imagines to be a Moorish palace and a darling hidey place, and for the prosaic Martin, looks just like a plain roof. In a moment of seeming honesty and self-awareness, she drops her pretenses of poise, declares herself a phony, laments that no one will ever want to marry her, and weeps. Martin, quote, loses all reasoning in a blur of nearness to her, unquote, and proposes. He is surprised that she then begins improving him more airily than ever, complaining about his vulgarity, badgering him about his laziness, and taking him, to the gloating delight of Ira, to church. Finally, his crude selfishness and her nag-nag-nagging lead to irreconcilable differences, and they part forever in front of a fraternity house where students are playing heartbreaking summer songs on a banjo. That summer, while Martin is working with other university students at Nokomis Lodge, he and Madeline begin exchanging letters, at first polite and infrequent, and soon passionate and daily. By midsummer, they are firmly re-engaged. His junior year is a whirlwind of lectures, laboratory work, teaching, reading, Madeline, and his first original research. Quote, his first lyric 
his first ascent of unexplored mountains, unquote. When his results are not consistent with the prevailing theories, he begins to question nature itself. Gottlieb advises him, quote, Observe what you observe, and if it does violence to all the nice, correct views of science, out they go, unquote. He then urges him to go find the why underneath it all, which Martin tries but fails to do. One day, Gottlieb sends Martin to secure a strain of meningococcus from Zenith General Hospital. When he becomes lost looking for Ward D, he stops to ask a nurse for directions. When she, in her frustration over being asked to scrub floors, refers to him as a child, his pride is wounded, and he superciliously calls her my dear and boasts of being a doctor collecting a dangerous microbe. She is apologetic for her freshness, but she is also unconvinced. He stalks off, saying, to himself more than to the nurse, that he has no need to convince the likes of her. But now he's the one unconvinced. Her image remains before him, provocative and enduring. When he returns to find her, both are at once open, honest, sorry, and confessional, and an instant and complete comradeship begins. They open their souls to each other, and, quote, each finds in the other part of his own self, always vaguely missed, unquote. I love that line. Her name is Leora. Martin asks her to dinner that night, and only later recalls that he is engaged to a girl named Madeline Fox. Away from Leora, Martin tries to talk sense into himself, and decides repeatedly to break off the date. He doesn't. And by the end of it, a dizzy evening of direct, unreserved, and mutually fascinated conversation, they are in love. Two weeks and two dates later, Madeline notwithstanding, they are also engaged. Having promised to spend a morning with Madeline, he goes to her with an understanding that by any canon of respectable behavior, he should feel like a low dog. But the feeling that he had sinned against loyalty breaks against Madeline's petty enthusiasms. He decides that he must throw Madeline over, and that he will do so the minute her efforts to improve him are renewed. But the savvy Madeline seems to have sensed something in the wind— and instead of complaining, she is sweetly pathetic. He finally feels like a low dog. He decides to drown those feelings in liquor at a pool room with Cliff. Under the spell of a whiskey-colored feeling that he is a nimble fellow, he hatches a dubious plan. He will invite them to lunch together, tell them the truth, and see which one loves him. He calls them both from the bar, schedules this inauspicious rendezvous, and Cliff drags him home to bed. The next day, he brings an anxiously expectant Madeline, still more anxious after she learns that they are going to meet a girl, on a dreadful 30-minute drive into Zenith. They meet Leora at the Grand, 
the extravagant hotel that Madeline had always begged Martin to take her to, and that Leora had thought too indulgently expensive. Madeline and Leora engage in a painfully awkward conversation in which Madeline's questions reflect a desperate effort to condescend to Leora, and Leora's answers are honest and a bit perplexed. Martin finally blurts out the truth, that he is engaged to both of them. Madeline's response is to spring up, stand proud, kiss Leora, and say, Dear, I am sorry for you. You've got a job. And walk away. Leora's response is to put her hand on Martin's, smile, and say, Sandy, I warn you that I'm never going to give you up. And Martin has the overwhelming feeling that his life has begun. The second of my posts was called Role-Playing, A Cautionary Tale. Reading these chapters of Aerosmith prompted me to reflect on one of the most valuable psychological concepts I know, the concept of role-playing. It is a tricky one to grasp in all its powerful utility. But in essence, it means that you have an explicit idea of the person you want to be, but aren't. So you put on a moral show. In other words, you are role-playing if you have an image in your mind of what it means to be a good or admirable person, and in defiance of your real inclinations, you continually seek ways to prove, to yourself and others, that you fulfill this image. The effort is fundamentally inauthentic. It is deliberate. It is contrary to your actual ingrained values. You are being the person you think you should be and not the person you really are. You are acting a part. I learned this invaluable concept from psychologist Dr. Edith Packer. My own understanding came through an integration of concrete instances, and that, I think, was an easier way to learn it than by definition. But Dr. Packer defines role-playing as presenting yourself as if both your conscious and subconscious premises are consistent with a certain image of yourself, even though your subconscious premises are not. So you keep your irrational thoughts, emotions, and actions hidden from others, not wanting to admit that you don't feel inside like the person you think you should be. It's a contradiction between your conscious philosophy and your subconscious. Let me try to flesh this concept out with concrete instances drawn from Aerosmith. Martin role plays. Earlier in the book, Martin condescends to his classmates, making them feel like lowbrows and commercialists, and criticizes his professors as hams and witch doctors, while acting as if he and Gottlieb alone possess a noble reverence for pure research. But when Angus Dewar says... We're all sick of your crabbing. If you think medicine is rot the way we study it, if you're so confoundedly honest, why don't you get out? Martin realizes he has a point. He asks himself, do I really mean it? He has an occasional self-awareness of his own role-playing. Then there is Martin's relationship with Madeline. He attends her parties in sulky unwillingness, but... 
impressed by the elegance of her graceful, well-frocked guests, skilled in the latest waltzes. He feels a covetous and competitive urge to have their manners. He suppresses his own preference for the solitariness of the lab and his aggravation at Madeline's efforts to improve him, and tries to play the role of the cultured socialite, because, at least for the moment, it is who he thinks he should be. In Martin's initial encounter with Leora, he tries desperately to play a role. He wants to be taken for a doctor. He wants to believe himself an eminent scientist dealing with dangerous microbes. He wants to believe himself above the derision of an impudent probationer. He also knows he is none of those things. And so, instantly, does Leora, which is part of what makes her so immediately lovable. Leora plays no roles. She is utterly herself. But more on her in a moment. The last of my posts was called, I Love Leora. One of our group members, Carrie Ann, called herself a Leora fangirl. We can form a club. I read this novel more than a decade ago, and she is one of the elements of this novel that I recall with the greatest fondness. I love her quick ability to see through Martin's pretenses and her guileless manner of brushing them aside. Desperate to be taken for a brilliant young surgeon, Martin tries to look important and refers to her condescendingly as nurse. In that context, her unself-conscious crabbing about her job and her casual reference to a child like him makes her immediately endearing. I love how her open, honest, non-defensive manner immediately prompts Martin to drop his own highly fortified defenses. When she admits her bad temper and apologizes for hurting his feelings, he admits to showing off. They are able to make a connection that is real. It's a connection so real and honest and meaningful that they instantly fall in love. The description of that moment is one of my favorites in the book. Quote, Sound of mating birds, sound of spring blossoms dropping in the tranquil air, the bark of sleeping dogs at midnight. Who is to set them down and make them anything but hackneyed? And as natural, as conventional, as youthfully gauche, as eternally beautiful and authentic as those ancient sounds, was the talk of Martin and Leora, in that passionate half-hour when each found in the other a part of his own self, always vaguely missed, discovered now with astonished joy. They rattled like hero and heroine of a sticky tale, like sweatshop operatives, like bouncing rustics, like prince and princess. Their words were silly and inconsequential, heard one by one. Yet taken together, they were as wise and important as the tides or the sounding wind. Unquote. And finally, I love her utterly defenseless response to Martin's absurd and awkward confession that he is engaged to two women. Madeline is haughty. She knows what she wants her future husband to look like. She has made a concerted effort to mold Martin to the part, and this is most definitely not it. 
Leora is unguarded. She simply loves Martin, right or wrong, and she will not let her own pride stand in the way of an open confession. No wonder Martin feels, having met her, that his life has begun.